Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the incredibly accomplished and charming Dr. Paola Pasquale. As the Medical Director and Chief Dermatologist of Pasquale and Associates Medical Center in Tarragona, Spain, and the Dermatology Coordinator of Pierce Hospital de Valls, Dr. Pasquale has long been established in her field and is internationally recognized in her areas of expertise, cryosurgery and minimally invasive diagnostic techniques for managing skin cancer. Additionally, she is the chairman of the International Affairs Committee for the American Academy of Dermatology, the AAD, and serves on the editorial board for the International Journal of AAD, has been on the organizing committee for several congresses of the International Society of Teledermatology, and has been a member of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology, the EADV, since 2018. Wow, she's some busy lady. (laughs) Dr. Pasquale has also edited four globally distributed books, including Cryosurgery, a Practical Manual, Photography in Clinical Medicine, and most recently, the textbook of primary care dermatology. And she's lectured on cryosurgery in more than 46 countries worldwide. And given how lousy I was at dermatology at medical school, I think I need to uh, refer to her textbook. (laughs) Now, aside from her vital work as a dermatologist, where she specializes in the early detection of skin cancer, she's also passionate about photography and cooking. So it's my profound pleasure to welcome Dr. Paola Pasquale to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Oh, I think you forgot my most important degree, which is that I became a grandmother a year ago. <laughs> and uh, you might hear my grandson Emilio scream because he wants to find his place in the in the website <laughs> early <laughs> in life. <laughs> well, congratulations on that marvelous accomplishment. They always say being a grandparent is the best because you get to give the child back. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, listen, if, if, if your grandson cries, we'll just join him into the conversation. But, you know, before we dig into the medicine, tell us, and, and I'm a huge fan of cooking, what, what are your favorite dishes to prepare and what are your favorite subjects to photograph? And, you know, I love to cook, but somehow my techniques of plating food never look aesthetically pleasing. So maybe you can teach me about that as well. Well, I've always loved to cook. Basically, I like to do a lot of, um, you know, I love the plating part of serving the food. uh, And I do a lot of finger food, you know, canapes. At the end, it all has to do with the convivial part of, you know, sharing the food. That's, I think, is the best part. Just having the opportunity to have people around a table and share moments through food. You know, I, I concur with you. And whilst looking after patients is obviously the ultimate privilege of being a doctor, for me, I always love teaching. And one of the most fun things to do I found for dinner parties with friends is for everyone to come and prepare a dish and teach as well as eat. So it's, it, it's a mum. And what, 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 do you, what do you like to photograph, Paula? In, in photography, I love to photograph empty spaces, details. I'm not into portrait photograph. Rather, I prefer, you know, the detail of a flower, maybe a corner in a city, a window, you know, just small details. 
probably that's why I'm a dermatologist. I love to see details. Ah, that's beautifully and elegantly stated. So let's dig a little bit in, into your background. You, you graduated from Boston University in 1982 with a master's degree in biology, and then you studied medicine and subsequently dermatology and syphilography at the Central University of Venezuela. Yes. You've truly had an international medical education. So tell us about what inspired you to pursue a medical career, why dermatology, and then I guess on the international nature of your training and your life. Well, I think that every person has a different profile in how they get into a, a career. I'm not the person that always thought of becoming a doctor, you know, I, I loved biology, and before that, I loved veterinary. I, I always tell that to my patients. Remember, I wanted to be a vet <laughs> when, when, when they misbehave. Yes. <laughs> well, that should concern patients, given how some veterinary medicines carried out. So, you know, I fall in love very easily with what I do. So I love biology. And then I had a professor that was a, a physician, a pediatrician, and he kept telling me that I was good in medicine, that I should go over with him to see patients. And I did. And I love, that's how I fell in love with medicine. And I decided to go into medical school. You know, life has taken me around. So I'm originally from Venezuela. I started in Boston. I moved to Spain. So I had the opportunity to know about the medical and educational systems in different countries. And, and I like to have had that opportunity because it had taught me how the differences, I can see how different uh, the, the education is in different places. And, you know, it gives you strengths once you have to manage and work with patients that come from different backgrounds. At the end, in medicine, the interesting thing is that patients are the same everywhere. They all have the same needs. No matter if you're seeing a patient in Nairobi, in Kiev, or in Chicago, it's exactly the same. And having different backgrounds helps you with that. I would concur with you. And at a time with all the terrible things that have been going on in Ukraine and in a world where people seem to be pulling apart, having that perspective as a physician, and like you, I've had the privilege of working in many places and operating all around the world. It really is true. People all want the same thing. They want a peaceful life, richly led, and they want to be healthy and they have the same fears and concerns. And I'm sure that your perspective is very, very helpful to patients. I'm sure there are differences in the sort of diseases, though, that you see in, for instance, in South America compared to uh, to Europe, yes? Oh, definitely, and, definitely, and there is also differences in the skin type. Yes, of you course. Know. What about the incidence of, and forgive my ignorance, what about the incidence of melanoma? Is it is it lower in Venezuela? Oh, very low. Very low. I almost never saw patients with melanomas. And instead, I'm in Spain now and, you know, there is a huge incidence. And probably if I went to Australia, I would see many more. Yeah. Well, I, I, in fact, I did, um, many years ago, I did a, a sabbatical in far north Queensland. And my other passion is flying aeroplanes. And I got to work with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And while I was there, they launched a campaign to address uh, skin cancer and they called it slip slap slop slide and it was slip on a hat slap on a shirt no slip on a slip on a shirt slap on a hat 
uh, slop on some sunscreen, um, slide on some sunglasses. I think that covers it. Slip, slap, slop, slide. And it, it had a big effect getting people to be aware of, of skin cancer uh, in Australia. Yeah, they, they, they have a huge problem uh, in Australia. Actually, when you read the papers and, and you see the differences in the published incidences from you know the Australia to Europe or to South America. I've, I've lectured in skin cancer in India, for instance, and somehow they look at me like, you know, they, they don't really have a problem with the skin cancer over there. So when I give all my lectures on basal cell carcinomas, they, it, it doesn't really, you know, relate too much to the, to the population uh, problems they have. Well, again, probably a stupid question, but with ozone layer depletion, are we going to see an increase in skin cancer rates? Oh, definitely. We have, we are seeing that, definitely. Wow. Okay. So you've, you've had a very prolific career in dermatology, academia, clinical practice, writing, lecturing, administration, hospitals and societies. What have been the standout moments of your career so far and, and why? Well, it's a difficult question because I, there are many tiny moments, uh, more than just one big moment. For instance, every time I got a book published was a great moment and uh, maybe getting, getting to work in a certain hospital or getting to see my teloderma system working and seeing the numbers. Uh, I mean, there, there are many moments, not just one. And maybe that has to do with being able to, to enjoy the tiny, you know, the tiny achievements more than sitting down and waiting for the huge ones. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's an operating principle, wake up in the morning and say every day is, a, is going to be a good day. But you mentioned your books, you're an author of four textbooks. Where do you think books fit into educating this new younger generation of doctors in the era of telemedicine and virtual learning? I actually was telling a young mentee of mine that uh, who was looking at some of my, the books I have on my coffee table and said, I used to belong to a book club and every month I would have a number of books delivered. And he looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> books and the role they play nowadays. What do you think? I think books always will play a role in education, always. Uh, but we have to remember that it doesn't matter the format. You know, before things were written in papyrus and then they were written in you know, paper books and now they're virtual. It doesn't matter the, the format. The important thing is that people read and people are reading or they're just reading in different ways. For instance, uh, all my books in, by Springer has a system where people can buy uh, books by chapters. They can download them in their you know, phones or in their pads. And, and so, so it's not like they are not reading. They're just reading in different formats. And, and I guess online, especially in your, your specialty, allows one access to far more images than, than you could include in, in a conventional printed textbook and just drive the cost up. To. No, and, and you know, many books, I mean, medical books have had, the, they, they get updated very, very fast. So in three, four years, you need to update the book. And, and that's another thing book editors do now. You can update your chapters online. 
So you're giving the latest information and that, that's an advantage over a paper book. And especially given the, the time from submitting a oh, manuscript yeah. and it has to be edited and then galley proofed and then come back and then print run and then exactly. distributed. It can be nine months after you've turned in the manuscript before it's out there and it comes out and you're desperately hoping it won't come out because it's embarrassing because, well, certainly in my books, I got something wrong. So, so let's turn to a specific condition, skin cancer, which we've already mentioned. Tell us about minimally invasive diagnostic techniques. That this is an exciting period for dermatology because we have the opportunity as far as skin cancer to make earlier diagnosis thanks to this minimally invasive diagnostic techniques. Uh, the first one has been uh, dermoscopy that gives the opportunity to see structures in a subepidermal level and to recognize vessels that allow you to, to recognize a skin cancer. Photography itself is a minimally invasive diagnostic technique. And because it, you, you take an image of a patient, you send it through Telederm, and you're capable of recognizing if the image is in good quality, if, it's, if you have used polarized filters, you can make a diagnosis of a skin cancer. I use a lot of high-frequency ultrasound to measure depth and to see the volume of the tumor and the shape, which is very important because, you know, tumors are not round spheres. They, they have different shapes. And, and if you have like an iceberg shape on a tumor, you might end up removing the tumor based on what you see on the surface, but actually you are leaving parts of the tumor in the depth because you did not recognize that there were areas uh, because the tumor was, you know, iceberg shaped. So, you know, all these techniques, if used correctly, will really help diagnosing earlier and diagnosing correctly and helping you make the best decision for the patient. It's a very good analogy. Uh, it really is the iceberg analogy. I like that. So from diagnosis to therapy, why is cryosurgery such a good choice for, for skin cancer treatment? Well, when I was a student in dermatology, saying skin cancer was synonymous to, you know, surgical removal of the lesion. And it turns, not, turns out that this is a very simplistic way of solving the problem because you have a patient, not a tumor, and that patient has a certain age, uh, a location of the tumor. That tumor has a different risk of invasion. And so if you have an elderly patient that has a tumor, you know, in, in the back and it's a low-risk tumor, you do not need to do a surgical excision and leave a huge scar. I mean, you might just curette the tumor, do cryosurgery, do PDT. I mean, there are many options. And that's what's interesting, that combination of, of the diagnostic techniques with also minimally invasive techniques for destruction and treatment. And that's why cryosurgery, I can do many, many tumors in one morning because my patients uh, are, you know, I, I see an elderly population in the area of farmers. I get a lot of people that are 80, 85, 90, and that come with a tumor in the earlobe. And I just do cryosurgery that correctly done will destroy the tumor. And that patient can be, stay sitting on a, on a chair, on a wheelchair. And I do everything with the patient on a wheelchair and remove a tumor with all the safety margins. 
that's why I love cryosurgery because I can do a lot of work and, and cure patients. So mostly what, for, for basal cells or? Basal cells and also for squamous cells that are, you know, well differentiated also works very well. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So it's a favorite quote of mine. Sir William Osler, who was a famed Johns Hopkins clinician, said that a good doctor was able, available and affable. I'm sure you'd, I'd hope you would agree with that. What would you say are some of the challenges in setting up a medical uh, practice for a young clinician? I love that sentence. <laughs> I love it because it puts together the concept of what a good doctor really is, because it's not only being a good student, you know, and, and I say this because not always the best medical students are the best doctors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's that combination of, you know, it's being in, emotionally intelligent uh, and, and, yes. and being capable of being affable to your patient and also be available. So it, I think it's fantastic. I think you never have to lose uh, that vision of what you are as a physician and that you, of course, you need to study all the time and you need to know your, you have the theory, but you have to be also a good person. You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to be reachable. And that maybe you will not learn from the medical textbooks. You will learn it from life in other ways. Uh, that's why I love physicians that get involved in many other things besides studying from books, <laughs> medical books. Yes. O otherwise, you 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 lose focus and you, you lose that capacity to understand patients. I always thought that for doctors who don't have that, I don't know, a personal touch, two people are actually harmed. The patient is harmed, but I think that they're, they're also missing out yeah. because it's, you know, when a patient shows trust in you, it's the biggest compliment one human oh, yes. being can provide to another. So do you think things have changed today from when you started out? for young doctors? No, I think, I just think, and I use a, a word that comes from the digital world, it's just the format that changes. But uh, you can be a, a fantastic, able, available, and affable doctor, uh, even using telemedicine, <laughs> because you can be just as good with a phone call. And I had that experience with the pandemic that suddenly, even though I had a telemedicine system set up, I found myself that I was at home. My patients were at home. I had no family physicians sending images. And I said, well, what am I going to do now? And so I, I had to use the old phone, <laughs> just make a phone call. And I figured, well, if I call my mom and I say hello and she feels good about it, why patients are not going to feel good about this too? And that, exactly that's what happened. You know, patients felt great about having their doctors call them. So, so you've mentioned uh, telemedicine, the pandemic brought it into much greater focus, but frankly, dermatologists have been using it for quite a while. While I was practicing in the United States, it was really quite common in some more remote areas. Tell us where you think teledermatology is, is heading. Teledermatology was being used and always we had this 
thing saying about, okay, you can use it if you have to get in touch with somebody that lives very, you know, distant from the hospital. And, you know, they, they, they had all these conditions, especially it's something as absurd as, for instance, in the state, you cannot do teledermatology to a patient that is in another state. <laughs> Yeah, because of licensure issues. Exactly. So at the end, it, the, the whole concept of getting in contact with your patient, uh, it, it, it's lost because that is one of the great things is that to do teledermatology to a patient in, in Peru or to do it in Chicago or your neighbor next door. I mean, there are no boundaries. And somehow, uh, many dermatologists did not agree with doing diagnosis through images, but the pandemic suddenly opened up, you know, everybody started doing teledermatology. Suddenly, you know, teledermatology just went up because it was the only way of doing dermatology and people realized that it was possible. It was possible to do, and it was great because we we always have fun, you know, our friends that do teledermatology, and we say, oh, we know we we needed the pandemic to, you know, to get hundreds of people asking us questions about teledermatology, and before, like we were ignored. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that uh, dermatology was a big struggle for me at medical school. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in specializing in dermatology today? Well, dermatology has to do with pattern recognition, and you need to train yourself in that aspect. And there are many ways of doing it. Uh, for instance, visual literacy. It's an aspect that is very important when you want to recognize patterns. There is a lot written now on that. For instance, there is a book by Amy Herman called Visual Intelligence, and I, you know, read it. it it's a fun reading it, and and you understand that if you want, and this is true for dermatology, but I think actually for everything, it's true. We miss many details in life because we just go very fast and we don't stop and see things. We need to observe. You go to a museum and people just run through the, the paintings and you wonder what yes. they have seen. Uh, I took a course called The Art of Observation, Visual Literacy for Dermatologists. Uh, it was done in England, and Dr. Griffith and Sarah Walsh. And we worked at the Wallace Gall Collection. Oh, I love that oh, museum, Manchester Square. This was a wonderful experience because we sat in front of paintings and we saw the texture of the painting, the colors. We had to describe details. And it turns out that paintings, you know, that was a new painting we were seeing because there was so much information we could get from each one of these paintings. And that that's what dermatology is all about. I mean, we have the opportunity to see the whole painting <laughs> but it's, then we have to be trained to see all the details and doing it through other ways like jobs said you know it's you, you get the training and then it all connects at the end so getting trained through paintings is a great uh, way of learning dermatology i really love that analogy and i actually think that i was actually i always enjoyed clinical diagnosis and uh clinical signs, you know, like finger clubbing or splinter hemorrhages under the nails or you know, monophasic digital ischemia, you would see, or a particular kind of tremor. And we had one wonderful clinician at medical school in, in small groups. He would just say, 
what can you tell me about this patient without asking her anything or, or touching her just by looking at her? Fascinating. Yeah, I, I had a professor in my medical school. He he was the person that taught us uh, neuro-ophthalmology. It was a new specialty back then. But all his lectures, he always mentioned Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he would put the images and, and he would taught us to see all the details and make diagnosis. And the patient would not even speak because we were only looking at the image of the fundus of the eye. And we should be able to say, okay, this patient is a diabetic patient. He has hypertension. And all that information was only from an image from the fundus yes. of the eye. Yeah. Fantastic. So given that background, what do you expect the future of skin cancer diagnosis to look like? And, you know, where might current imaging technology be improved in the coming years? We are moving towards a world of the patient image. This is how I call it. You know, patients will be more and more images than ever because uh, for one of the things is that there are very few dermatologists. And of, the, of those that graduate, many of them go into cosmetics. And I'm not doing any judgment on this. I'm just stating the facts. And the ones that are dedicated to skin cancers are very few. And the amount of patients with skin conditions and skin cancers are increasing. So we need to use imaging techniques to make diagnosis and deciding what to do with the patients. The current imaging world, it's moving towards having a one equipment with all the techniques. So be able to photograph, do dermoscopy, ultrasound, and confocal with one system, because now we have four different systems. You know, we take a photograph, then we go and take the images of the dermoscopy, and, you know, it takes time. And to that system, we will need to add artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence will help us decide if that lesion is benign or malignant. That's where I was going to go to next. So the machine learning algorithm, the more it sees, the more it learns, right? Yeah, exactly. That's why we need good images. And that's why I insist on my students that they have to take good images because we need great libraries of images feed to these algorithms. Yeah. So being a good photographer is, um, is important and it brings us full circle, really, doesn't it? So... Going back to the, I guess, the telemedicine, the impact of the create, you can't have a conversation about medicine today or anything today, frankly, without considering the way the coronavirus pandemic affected people. What about dermatology practice? You know, we hear about the sequelae of COVID on neurology causing balance disorders and, and myalgias and cardiovascular damage. What about your specialty? Are there any sequelae from a dermatologist's perspective? I, I would believe that less than in other specialties. There are the descriptions of rashes that last for months, urticaria. That there are also many descriptions of rashes caused by the the vaccine. But I would say nothing that is particularly you know concerning to the patient. That that would be my feeling about you know the impact. That's refreshing because um, I, I had COVID and I had it pretty badly, actually. And it's been several months now and I still have sequelae. 
uh, from it. So at least I don't have to worry about any rashes. Well, that's good. There, there is a, one of the interesting things that happened with the pandemic is that we started getting images from the countries that first got COVID. So from, for instance, I'm in Spain and we started getting images from Italy. And then we sent our images of all the chill blains to our French colleagues who did not have COVID yet. And, and it started spreading like that, you know, through images. So by the time the corona got to the United States, they knew of many of the conditions that they could expect because we had seen all those conditions before them and we had sent the images. So many conditions were described ahead of time. And I thought that it was an interesting way of combining images, techniques, and diagnosis through times. And removing all all the you know difficulties that are associated with image sending because at that time we could do basically everything. I mean, we'd send images through WhatsApp so that our colleagues would get the information on time. That's fantastic. So, uh, Paula, in closing, I, I love to ask all my guests a version of this question: If you had three wishes to improve the health of citizens of the world, what would they be? So now you're a kind of a genie. <laughs> you give me three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I normally talk about genies popping out of bottles, but uh, I thought I'd mix it up today. Okay. Well, if I would like to see a world with, you know, a free health system for everybody, I think every human being has a right to have access to good medical care and not having to worry about getting sick and not being able to get, you know, the medical care and medicines that they need. That will be my first wish. <laughs> uh, that comes with education. You need to have uh, educate people on medicine too. You need to know yourself. Take care of your conditions and your health. My third wish would be like more... Uh, has to do with the environment. We need to take care of the environment and we need to also, again, teach people to take care of the environment, to eat healthy, because if they eat well, then uh, they they will have better health. So basically, those will be my three wishes. I think they're very lovely wishes. I'm, I'm really thrilled that you had, uh, that you managed to take the time to grace us with your presence, especially when you get to spend time with your family and your little one. And I think it's time for breakfast. <laughs> Thank you for all you do for the specialty that you've practiced in for so many years and for the patients who are lucky enough to have you as their doctor, Dr. Paolo Pasquale. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. It was lovely to be here with you. So folks, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on the EMG Health Podcast. It's been a total delight having Dr. Pasquale with us, sharing her insights and wisdom and making me wish that I'd paid more attention back in med school. And so until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Until it's time for the next one, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.